Hello listeners, my name is Anna Soper and I'm a visual artist and librarian in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to Teen People, the podcast where I track down real people who were in Teen People magazine as teens and young adults. When I came up with this idea, I originally thought of it as a documentary film or streaming series, but I'm not a filmmaker and then the pandemic happened, so I pivoted and turned my idea into a podcast. Three years later, I've spoken with about 30 people who are now in their 30s and 40s about being in Teen People magazine, coming of age in the 2000s, and how they're doing now. Teen People was a spin-off of People and was published between 1998 and 2006. They featured real teens in every issue and printed their full names, ages, and locations, which makes many of them really Googleable today. Where are these real teens now? If you're a fan of You're Wrong About or Storytime with Seth Rogen, you'll love this podcast. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody. My guest in this episode is Alicia Fernandez-Miranda, a Cuban-American writer based in Scotland. Her memoir, My What If Year, was published in February 2023, and the book describes her year-long experiment doing internships in the dream jobs of her childhood. She is also the host of the award-winning podcast Quit Your Day Job, which explores some of these dream careers with people who are actually doing those jobs. Alicia is a graduate of Harvard University and the London School of Economics, and is the former CEO and current chair of IG Advisors, an award-winning social impact intelligence agency that coaches the world's biggest nonprofits, companies, and foundations on their philanthropy and social impact. Her clients have included the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and UN Women. Alicia speaks and writes regularly on women's empowerment, social impact, and sustainability. She began her career in the pages of Teen People magazine, and is good friends with my previous guest, Amar Shah, who is also from Florida and who was also on Teen People's news team. The Teen People news team was a core of young journalists from across the United States who created original content for the magazine and contributed to Teen People's human interest reporting. As you'll hear in this episode, Alicia treasures her time with Teen People, and like so many of my guests, speaks so fondly of that magazine and that time in her life. She still has a box of Teen People magazines at her parents' home in Miami, and I asked her why she's kept that collection after all these years. I think it was, it really was just this completely magical experience. And I don't even know I appreciated it for what it was when I was 16. What do you appreciate at 16? I mean, you know, not a whole lot, but I think that it takes me back to a time in my life where there were so many possibilities where my, you know, I was, I was so sure of what I wanted to do and I didn't do any of those things, which is very funny to kind of remember that person, but also to just feel part of something bigger. I feel like it was my first real experience, like doing things on a national scale outside of what was happening in my little Miami community. And it really, um, it wet my appetite for wanting to do that more throughout my life. So I think it was a pretty, when I really think back about it, it was such an important time. And so I can't, and those are like my first published clips. So now that I'm writing, that feels really special to have those. But yeah, they're still, my parents made me cut down everything I owned. First, I had like a whole closet. Then I got two boxes. Now I have one box 
and the teen peoples are still there. They've made it through. <laughs> They've survived cut after cut after cut. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Well, I actually have two teen peoples that you are in. Mm. Yes. So I have um, this Will Smith. I have that one too. <laughs> yep. From August, 1999. And that is you going out um, with a teen people photographer and describing a night out on the town in Miami. Yes. Oh my God. Actually, no one ever, I did. I had forgotten about that story. And when I was going through my stuff for you, I went and looked back at it. And I have, there are several stories that have been published about my nights out. I did something similar in college for the Harvard Crimson, which was, it's like mortifying and wonderful at the same time. That's how I feel about that story. Like I, I can't really bear to look at it, but also I'm so glad it exists as a kind of record of what life was like back then. But I'm like, I actually remember that night so vividly that we did that because it was like, you know, it had to be really really good. You can just go to a house party with a team people reporter. And that was it. We like went on a party boat. We went and had Thai food. All of my girlfriends were like, so excited to be able to be in the magazine. I mean, it was like such a big deal. Mm -hmm. You got ice cream and then you went to kind of like an after party at Brianna's house, which was a bordello back in the 1920s, uh, where you said you usually wind down after a night of excitement. Yeah. Or why? I mean, you know, there were certain things you couldn't put in the magazine. I think Brianna's <laughs> parents were uh, the laxest parents of the entire group. So we did <laughs> often end up there because that was the place with the least amount of rules. So it was always easy to sleep over there. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that doesn't surprise me too much. So you went to a Thai restaurant called Bangkok, Bangkok, and you had uh, entrees called you, me, and the old man and earth, wind, and fire. Tell me about those. Still my favorite Thai food. I haven't been, I, I don't even know if Bangkok, Bangkok is still there in Miami, but um, you know, at the time, let's say late nineties, uh, you know, it was not as common as it is now to get such a wide range of international cuisine, especially Asian cuisine in Miami. So lots and lots of Cuban and Latin American food, lots of Haitian food, um, but not a ton of food from other places. So Bangkok, Bangkok was like the one Thai restaurant in Coral Gables, which is where I lived. And you could sit on the floor and just felt very elevated to go eat there. So I think I remember you mean the old man was sort of like a meat and vegetables and a little bit of a sauce, like not quite a curry, but a sort of sweet sauce that you would have over rice. And then what was the other one we had? The shrimp, the disco shrimp? Um, Earth, wind and fire. Earth, wind and fire. Oh, I love that too. That one had cashews. Mm. Oh, that reminds every time I go back to Miami, I'm like, I really need to find out if that place still exists. <laughs> but it was, um, it was like the place to get, you know, it was like slightly more expensive, not expensive, but more expensive than where teenagers would normally eat. So it was like a special place that we would go out to. Nice. Nice. Well, uh, I talked with somebody in 2020 who was in this story she was describing a night out in san francisco her name is lisa so it's so cool to meet somebody else who was in this very same story it was you know they were always presenting us with these like unbelievable opportunities uh as i recall to review books or you know what they they really wanted to use the news team especially in that first year because they didn't quite know what to do with us yet to explore what it meant to be a teenager at that time. And so, you know, what a cool thing to be able to take a magazine out with you on a night out. And so, and they really did, you know, I had an editor there whose name escapes me now, but I remember thinking she was 
phenomenal. Vicky? Elaine, maybe? Vicky, Vicky. Yes. And I kept in touch with her for years after, um, although I've lost touch with her now. But, you know, it, it was really uh, a collaborative process. As I recall, they were like, what would you normally do? We came up with the agenda. We came up with the plan. I mean, at like 16, 17 years old, that's an incredible amount of responsibility to be given for a story. Um, and so I think in that issue, right, there were like several different cities that we did. Personally, yes. I think Miami seemed like the most fun, but I was biased <laughs> in that way. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting because I've talked with a lot of my guests about how you guys were all early content creators, but you were doing that in a completely print medium. That's so funny. I've never thought about that, but it is very true. And it never felt, um, it never felt alone. Do you know what I mean? Like there was a, there were, we were a team, there were editors to work with. And so I think now when I think about, and I actually, I interviewed a content creator for my podcast and she was explaining to me how hard she hustles basically it's not an easy job to be a content creator and I do feel grateful that while we were creating this content we were never alone in it and also glossy magazines were like so legit back then like they were the thing I mean being in teen people and you know to be in 17 to be in Cosmo whatever it was was just beyond it was like the ultimate ultimate goal it was like you know the equivalent of a journalist wanting to be in the New York Times. I mean, I think that's what it felt like at the time. Mm, yeah. And Amar told me that um, there was a really good online network that teen people built. Like you all had an AOL um, buddy list. It was awesome. And I, I have in my box of stuff, these emails from him and a couple other of the news team members you know, we would write each other these like super long emails. And I just said, I actually sent Mar the other day because we had lost touch for many years and then kind of found each other again on LinkedIn, which was super nice. And he's also writing, he has a book coming out this year. And I said, I, I showed, I was like, I have one of your early short stories because he was writing and sending, you know, who do these long, long emails to each other. And a lot of his were fiction and he was already writing and writing like incredible stories back then. And it was so cool to have that they were all like our my first pen pals I mean it was it was so it's so hard to imagine now what it was like then when this was the first of everything this is the first time any of us were doing any of this it was the first time I was really communicating with people that I didn't know in real life because instant messenger was like a new thing email was a new thing and so having these relationships with kids from around the country who were not like me, but also like me in the same ways that we were all attracted to teen people and to this role. It was so eye-opening. It was such, it, I was so lucky to be a part of it, I think, and to still be able to be in contact with some of those people now. Mm, that's such fascinating insight. It was the first time you were doing this. It wow. was, it was so special. And so it was just, didn't have any of the baggage that it all does now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Amar told me about the, the the experience he had of of sharing his some of his writing with the teen people, other teen people news team members, and in particular, a, a girl called Erin Layton. I don't know if you knew her. It's not ringing a bell, but that doesn't mean I didn't. It just means that I'm 41 now, so <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten some things. <laughs> well, it's so fascinating that you printed out um, emails uh, from him and from the other news team folks because Amar told me he printed out AOL conversations that he had with Aaron. Wow. Yeah. 
That's amazing. I'm, I do have a, I have a lot of good material on people in case anybody ever like hits it really big. I have a lot to sell to actual people magazine for <laughs> stories, uh, stories behind them. I, I look forward to Amar's books becoming a bestseller so I can bring back his early uh, oh, no. first short stories. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> just kidding, Amar. Just kidding. It's going to be fine. <laughs> the second thing that I have that you did for teen people is in this issue with Sarah Michelle Geller. Yeah. And so this is October 1999, and this is Cool School of the Month. Classes at Miami's Maritime and Science Technology Academy are seaworthy. So this was reported by you and Grace Lim. Yeah, <laughs> it was my high school. It sounds awesome. It, it was awesome. It yeah. was such a great place to go to school. Can you hold that up for me? Can I see that? I... Oh my God, I remember that so, so vividly so vividly we were a very cool school <laughs> i mean can you imagine the street cred that that got me like hello that was just if i needed any help with my popularity that was going to get me there because i think people were so everybody wanted to get in the pictures everybody wanted to be featured it was such a big deal mm -hmm. yeah that's what lindsay soul kirkman told me because she profiled dr phillips high school in orlando and oh, yeah. she said that the day the teen people came everybody wanted to be in the pictures everybody was following them around she was the oh, most yeah. popular girl <laughs> <laughs> the most popular girl yeah so your school sounds really really awesome um i love all these pictures um i love the things that the captions um the things that people had to say about the school mm. um yeah, so it says courses are offered in marine biology, oceanography, maritime literature, and underwater photography, to name a few. We do actual field work instead of sitting in a classroom, says Wen Yang, 18, who recently combed a mangrove forest for oil samples to test. This is such a cool place to go to school. In fact, I have, I I did think I well, I wanted to be a marine biologist. I think everybody sort of did, although that's not why you went there. You went there because it was a great school. It was a public school and it was a magnet school. So if you passed the assessment, there was also an interview. Um, and then at the time I was going there, it was essentially an integration project. So they uh, had different lists. They, I think it was 30% Hispanic, 30% black and 40% uh, other or something, maybe 40, 40, 30. I can't remember what the, or 40, 40, 20, but math was not my specialty. <laughs> and uh, it, what the school, magnet schools then were started as projects to integrate kids of different races all over the county. Then they changed it after, and now it's a completely different kind of beast. But in the nineties, that's what the school was. So it was this like beautifully, richly diverse experience to be able to go to school there. And it was a great school. You had tiny class sizes. My graduating class was 110 kids. And there were a couple other schools like that in Miami at the time. One was a performing arts school and one was a kind of art and design school. And so if you were like an academic-y kid, this was your place to go. So all of our PE classes were marine themed. You know, you could take a lot of AP science classes in marine biology and oceanography and marine geology and all sorts of things like that. But people came really just to kind of have, I guess, a private school experience in a public school. I mean, I think that's why a lot of people ended up going there. And it was such a fantastic place to go to school. I honestly cannot believe sometimes the stuff we got to do. For PE, we got to go kayaking. We got to go sailing. We played water polo. 
it was it was such a great place. It was so nice to be able to feature. And I do think that those pictures and that story really do it justice, actually, because it was, you know, nowhere is perfect, but it was a great place to go to school. And I think so fondly about those days. Mm. One of the students in the article says that the only drawback of going to the school is having wet hair all the time. <laughs> that was true. Although it was so warm in Miami. Now I live in Scotland and it's like, yeah, oh, you know what? I never let my Scotland. kids go out with wet hair. I know, I know. <laughs> but in Miami, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Oh, yeah. Well, tell me about the move to Scotland. I know you were in London for a while. So maybe let's do this chronologically. You went to Harvard, then you went to the London School of Economics, and correct. now you're in Scotland. Correct, correct. With a little bit in between. So I left Miami for college, did my undergrad at Harvard, uh, traveled outside of the U.S. for the first time my freshman year, and just really got the travel bug. And then any time I could scrape together enough money for like a student ticket, I would fly overseas somewhere to go do something. And fell in particular love with London. One, because it was easy to kind of blend right in. London's such an international place. I spoke the language. It felt familiar, but also completely exotic. And I, you know, I I came for a semester abroad. I got a job in a pub. I just really was like, this is where I want to build my life. So I ended up coming back for grad school right after I graduated college, mostly because that was the easiest way to get a visa. I couldn't get a working visa um, yet, but my plan was to try to get a job with a working visa when I was here for my year of grad school. And I studied uh, women's studies in my undergrad, and then I studied gender. And I had for a long time harbored dreams of being a journalist, but then uh, kind of dropped that in early college and didn't really pick back up writing until very recently. Um, so uh, I fell in love that year in grad school and my now husband could not get a visa, even though I did get a job offer with a visa. So I moved with him to New York under the stipulation that as soon as we could figure out a way to get back, we would come back to the UK. And so a few years later, we got engaged. And then I was like, great, if we're married, we only need one visa and the other person can come as a dependent. And so that's what we did. I got a visa on a program that was called the Highly Skilled Migrant Program, which does not exist anymore, but it was a way to come over to the UK without a job, fewer sort of willing to work and met a set number of criteria. And so moved back uh, over to the UK in 2008, February, 2008. Thought we would be here. Well, I knew we would be here for a while. I, I don't think I realized I would really be here for this long. I had my twins in 2011. They have only ever lived in the UK. They are dual citizens and, uh, you know, but they, they really consider themselves British, which is like very funny to me. And then we moved up to Scotland. I mean, it's a longer story, but the short version of it is that we had fallen in love with Scotland years before. We loved to vacation up in Scotland. We bought a little cottage on the Isle of Skye in 2018, which is a very rural part of Scotland. Um, and would go up there, you know, about six times a year, basically whenever we could get up from London. And then when COVID happened, we were there and we stayed, uh, we stayed for several months through the lockdown, went back to London, came back up for the second lockdown. And by that point we were like, I think it's time to figure out where we go from here and working life had changed. You know, I had gone through this big career change. I had been uh, consulting and working in the philanthropy space. I decided to spend this year doing these internships and then I wrote a book about it. And that was like taking off. It looked like maybe I was going to get a book deal than I did. And so we were just sort of like, well, if we could live 
somewhere where, you know, if we don't have to go into an office every day, where do we want to live? And so Edinburgh was just top of that list for us. It was a city we always loved. It's got an international airport, so fairly easy access to the U.S. It's close enough to Sky that we can still get back. And it's a small city, which was unusual for me because I've lived in big cities most of my life. But I'm fully, fully come around to the charms of a small city. I actually now think it's like, I don't know why everybody doesn't live here. <laughs> so yeah, so that brought me here. So it is a long way from home, yeah. <laughs> but now this is home too. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Well, I moved to Scotland in August of 2008 and I was there for four months. And then I moved to London in 2009 and I, I took a leave of absence from my bachelor's degree and lived, I have dual citizenship. So I lived and worked in London um, for that year and then came back to Canada to finish my degree. And the hope for me was that I was gonna move back. As soon as I was mm. done my, my BFA, I was gonna go back to the UK. But I think I looked at how the economic situation was in sort of 2011-ish when I came out of my degree and I just, I was a bit spooked and I had mm-hmm. student loans to pay. Um, so I stayed in Canada, but I still would love to have an opportunity to go and live there again. Well, um, amazing that you can come anytime. At least you don't have the visa to worry about with dual citizenship. You can that's come true. I'm, I'm very lucky. And, you know, before Brexit, Europe was open to me. Ugh, so I know. Don't even get me started. I know. That was right? like my whole grand plan for getting my British citizenship. And then Brexit <laughs> happened two years later, a year and a half later. But um, we moved over in 20, 2008 you know, about seven or eight months before the financial crisis. And, um, and when, when I graduated college in 2004, I was in high school in the nineties in my teen people days. And I do really think that I was part of this bizarre micro generation where we, we kind of got in ahead of a lot of the crises. Now you could argue whether we caused some of them. I'm I'm sure we have a lot of culpability in that, but you know, that was not, if if I had moved, you know, if it had been a year later, let's say, I may not have come over. My husband and I quit our jobs and picked up and moved to the UK with this visa, completely confident that we would get other jobs because, you know, when I was in 2004, when I was graduating college, they were literally handing out like expat deals and jobs like free candy, you know, on Halloween. And by that point, and, and then when I finished grad school, I got a, a, an opportunity to stay with this visa for a consulting firm. I had zero consulting experience. And, you know, it's going to be expensive to sponsor me and bring me over. But it just, it didn't matter. Like, these were really these heydays of, you know, pre-financial crisis times. And I think, you know, you can never know what would have happened. But I think if it had been a little bit later, it's very possible that my life might have gone in a whole different direction. Because I think... I don't know that we would have had the confidence to come over and do that and be so sure we were going to be gainfully employed if it had been after the financial crisis because, you know, it was a much tougher time. Yes. Yeah, I arrived just before, like literally a week before. And I remember being in London just to have a little bit of a holiday with family um, there before I went to Glasgow to study and um, not really being quite aware of what had just happened in September of of 2008 mm. until I got back to Glasgow and then I started paying attention to the news and then I I had to get a bank account and I went you know to the, all the high street banks and they were turning me away it was not easy and that's the thing I I really feel like you know everything's hard right now but I think I I look at at living in the UK and and to me it looks harder than ever before I think right now facetiously it's I call it a dumpster fire that's not very nice to say but it is in my 15 years here I have never seen it like this I think it is 
is shocking to me how on just every marker, things are much more difficult here than they were, you know, regardless of who you are and where you're living. But obviously there's particular groups of people who are really suffering after years of austerity, really suffering after Brexit and COVID. You know, I have to check the strike calendar before I make any plans to see who's on strike. Is it the trains? Is it the plane staff? Is it the border control, you know, the on days we've had nurses strikes rolling in those days. I don't let my kids go to the park because I'm like, you can't afford to break a bone today because we can't go to the hospital. Like, you know, and that has become part of life here at the moment. And, uh, you know, without getting too political on a non-political podcast, you know, with a very morally bankrupt ruling party at the moment who continues to come out with the most ridiculous inhumane things. So, We've got a general election next year. I'm trying to be optimistic that things are going to get better. Um, but it's 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 very weird. And it makes me look back even more fondly on the times that we had where, you know, when I first came over, it could not have been more. Everything was exciting. London was booming. It was such an exciting place to be. I think really since Brexit, the country has changed pretty dramatically. And it was changing before that as well. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying don't come. I'm just saying think about it, make a backup plan <laughs> or come to Scotland, come back yes. to Glasgow. Yeah. Still great up here. Yes. Yes. Oh, I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to go back to Scotland too. Um, yes. Uh, this podcast sometimes does get political, so that's fine. And oh, right, uh, <laughs> uh, for, for the, the listeners out there, I was nodding vigorously. <laughs> Let it be known. I was nodding vigorously. Um, I think that kind of leads us into talking about your book. I'm just pulling up my questions here. You had this life in London and you had this consultancy and you decided you needed a change. I know that you, you said that um, when you turn 40, which I think is a big turning point for us all, I'm not there yet, but I feel like it is going to be a big turning point for me. Mm. When you turned 40, you kind of reassessed where you were going and what you were, wanted to do. And you decided to go and do internships for a year. Yeah, I wasn't even 40 yet, actually, but it was like on the horizon. It was the next big thing happening. And so, yes, I mean, my big changes, I guess all the planning and prep was happening to do this internship project before COVID was COVID. Um but essentially, you know, I've kind of found myself early 2019. I was CEO of a company that my husband and I had started. I had the kids and the husband and the nice house in London. It was like the Notting Hill, you know, I wasn't living in Notting Hill actually, but it was like the Notting Hill movie, like of my dreams. It was what I had always wanted to do. And I was, this big milestone was coming up and I was just like, I am not happy. I'm not fulfilled. I'm not satisfied. I should be. So I feel horribly guilty about that. And I don't know why. And I had had this idea that came from a lifelong love of musical theater. I always loved musicals. And I would, I just always dreamt of being part of them. And I had once said to my husband, almost as a joke, you know, I mean, it was a joke at the time, like, oh, I'd, I'd do anything to be part of a musical. I would fold playbills and pick up trash and get coffees for people. Like, you know, I could just be an intern. They would let me sit in on rehearsals and know what it was like. So this idea was like noodling in my head. And I was with a couple of girlfriends one night in early 2019. I had just gotten back from the World Economic Forum at Davos, where I had been, you know, rubbing shoulders with world leaders and having this like what was should have been like a very meaningful experience, reaching this very successful place in my career and feeling just really like I did not know what was happening and what I wanted to do. And I 
well, we had a few martinis. And then I expressed to them this idea. And they're like, yeah, you could go be an intern in the theater and you could, you know, you could do other internships. We started talking about what internships we would do and had a very, very uh, increasingly ridiculous evening, but like a wonderful time. And then the next day I woke up and I couldn't get the idea out of my head. And so I spent about eight months of 2019 uh, just convincing myself there was absolutely no way I could make this happen. And then finally decided, all right, I'm going to, obviously this is important. I've not been able to stop thinking about it. I have to do it. And so I had sort of very, very carefully planned out this year of mini sabbaticals from my job. I was going to go and do these internships at the jobs I always wanted to do when I was a kid. Working for a glossy magazine was up there. That was supposed to be one of the things I was going to do. And my first internship was uh, shadowing two shows, an off-Broadway and a Broadway show in New York. So I picked up February 29th, 2020, left London, went to New York, and had this extremely magical two and a half weeks before the entire world shut down <laughs> for a while. And then I did continue. I did three other internships. Um, but some of them, like marine biology, like magazine journalism, uh, I didn't get a chance to do. So now I'm like, hmm, maybe this is a sign that I should keep doing internships. My poor husband is like, please stop doing internships. But I'm like, maybe just a couple more, just a few more. <laughs> uh, if you could wake up tomorrow morning and go to an internship anywhere in the world, what would it be and what would you do? Disney World fascinated by every element of it. I'm fascinated by the logistics of how you control the crowds. I'm fascinated by how people are trained to be like so freaking cheery all the time. I was actually at Disney for my 40th birthday. Uh, I had gone to Miami. I had gone home. I had a party with a bunch of friends. Everybody who didn't have COVID came to the party. And then, <laughs> uh, and then we went to Disney. And when you go on your birthday, you get, you can get a pin and it says it's my birthday. And every single person that worked in that park was wishing me a happy birthday, taking pictures of me. I was like, this is, I can't believe I haven't spent every birthday here. Um, but I, in all seriousness, I love, I just find that business so fascinating. I would love to get under the skin of it and understand what it was like. And marine biology, I would still really like to do. It's funny with magazine journalism because I don't think glossies are now what they once were. And so I'm not sure if that would be everything I had hoped it would be, or if it would be a disappointment. And I did sort of get some of my days doing that with teen people and other things, but yeah, Disney, Disney, if you're listening, I'm ready. Let's make <laughs> it happen. <laughs> so it sounds like writing this memoir has been really rewarding for you and um, perhaps something you didn't expect you were going to be doing. And of course, nobody expected the pandemic and the context that that has changed everything that we do um, and how that's forced us to reassess um, our the direction of our lives and the things that we're doing. But I'm wondering, now that you've had such success with this book, do you have any other books in mind? Mm, I do. I do. I definitely want to keep writing. It was so unexpectedly joyful to like reconnect to that part of myself that I really had not, I don't think I had probably done any creative writing since my teen people days, I would say. Um, and so that was just this like beautiful surprise. And so, yeah, I'm working on a novel. I'm, I might be working on it for a long time. <laughs> I have a draft, but it still needs a lot of work. 
And then I think I do want to do another nonfiction e-memoir type book, but that's still like really, really, really early stages. So, um, but I know I want to keep writing. I've done a bunch of personal essays. I want to keep doing that. It's just a really nice way. It's, it's a nice release. And it's also just like a great way to kind of check in with myself and understand where I am, what I'm feeling. I think writing is great therapy because you really have to interrogate the reasons behind why you do what you do, why you feel the way you feel in order to create a good story. And so it's a good practice to be able to do that. So yeah, I hope I will still be writing. (laughs) And your publisher, do they publish fiction as well as nonfiction? Or you have to look for another publisher? No, no, I am. uh, I mean, I think let's hope they want it. But but no, so Zibby Books is a brand new publisher. I was actually their first book. The second one came out on March 7th. And the second one is a novel. So um, they do fiction and memoir by women. Uh, That is their kind of group. So hopefully I won't have to travel too far from the Zibby universe uh, mm. with this next book. But it's it's a totally different ball game, uh, writing fiction. It's been really challenging. I've had to learn. I've had to stretch myself in a lot of different ways. So um, yeah, I hope it will be a book one day. <laughs> I hope it will be a book one day. But I think I still I still need some work on it. I think that's true of everything that we start, you know, I hate to use that phrase, but later in life, things mm. that we don't grow up doing. Yeah, absolutely. But also, I think that's great. I think it's part of what I enjoy so much about it is that it is a bit of a stretch, that it doesn't just feel easy, that it doesn't necessarily come naturally, and that it takes hard work and effort, and that it's doing something I haven't done before. And you know, part of what came out of my experience of doing all these internships was that I wanted to continue trying to build a career that enabled me to keep learning, to keep putting myself in positions that were slightly uncomfortable, to keep stretching and growing because I had kind of stopped doing that for a while. And so all of this, including writing the novel, you know, all of these things that are happening now are things that are not things I had expected I would be doing and not really things I had done before, but that's kind of great. That's Mm -hmm. the point. Mm -hmm. And that's also what inspired your podcast too, eh? Absolutely. So Quit Your Day Job was a way to continue figuring out what people's jobs were like without having to leave my home and go do internships to do them. So it's in its third season. I have interviewed a CIA spy and a gardener and a TV director and a hotelier and Broadway actors and actresses, uh, art gallery owners and dealers. I mean, so many different people working very, very different careers. And it's been so extraordinary to be able to really get behind the scenes and talk to them about what it's like and what's great about it and what's not. And I I do have a relatively insatiable curiosity about jobs and what jobs are like and what it's really like to do specific things because I think work is so important to our lives. We spend so much of our lives at work and working and working for someone or towards something. And so I remain so fascinated by it. It's part of what drew me to the internships as well. I think just this real desire to want to know what it's like to have a different job and maybe a different life. Mm. And it's got to increase your networks as well, just building connections with all these people, because that's what I've found doing this podcast. Yeah, it's been awesome. It's opened up so many interesting opportunities and great conversations. You know, the whole first season was people that were already in my network. So I definitely beg, borrowed and steeled to get interviews the first season. And then when the second season rolled around, people started reaching out to me and that was just extremely cool. And now 
I get more requests than I can, I can kind of put through, but like, for example, you know, um, one of my episodes this season is with a woman who is a wedding officiant in Las Vegas. She like works at a wedding chapel in Las Vegas. And I'm like, Oh, and her, I guess her publicist had reached out to me and they're like, do you want to interview? Her? I was like, yes, absolutely. Like what a cool job that I didn't even really think of. But now I of course want to know everything about it. So, you know, things like that, it feels like such a great, um, it's just, it's just, it, it continually surprises me and I love being able to do it. And like podcasting is so fun. You just like hop on a screen, have a conversation with somebody. So it really, it feels like it shouldn't be a job. It feels like it should be just uh, something fun I get to do. I love it. I love getting to talk with complete strangers about their lives. It's so cool. I know. And people like, I mean, people love to talk about themselves. I think that's very true. I'm yes. no exception to that. Uh, and it's just so, one of the great things I learned in writing a memoir and doing some writing classes with people around memoir and personal essay and things like that is that every single person has an incredible story to tell about their life. Like nobody does not have a fascinating story about their own life. And whatever way it is, whether it's podcast or a book or reading an essay, I just, I'm, I'll never get tired of hearing those stories or reading those stories because they are completely fascinating and nobody can tell your life story, but you. So yeah, I love it. Mm -hmm. Something I've noticed from watching your social media is that you seem to have a really robust social and professional network. And I just think it's fascinating that you're a debut author and your book has been profiled on CNN and ABC, Good Morning America. Tell me about how you've been able to create these opportunities to promote your work. I mean, definitely I have to shout out to my publisher and their publicity team for a lot of those things, especially things like Good Morning America, you know, CNN. Zibby is an incredibly well-connected person and uh, people are very interested in what she is doing. So I got the good fortune that people were also interested in what I was doing. I think there's an element of this book coming out at the right time. And it's a time where a lot of people are connecting with the message of what if and the story behind it. And mm -hmm. You know, I think a time as well where people are looking for something uplifting, lighthearted to read, maybe, you know, something that's going to make them feel good and hopeful and optimistic about the future because it doesn't always feel like that in the world around us. But, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate you saying that. And I would say I have a really good and strong network. It helps that I am a natural extrovert. I do really feed off spending time with other people. It's part of why I'm going back on a tour again, because I had so much fun the first time around. I was like, I have to do this again and again and again. And this was what I could negotiate with my husband for the first uh, part of the year of, in terms of leaving my children this time for, for nine days. So, you know, I love it. I genuinely love it. I love meeting people. I love maintaining relationships with people, but um, you know, it's, it's funny that we were talking about teen people, but I think that was like my first, I guess, professional network I was ever a part of because I had worked, you know, local jobs and like retail jobs. I worked at an amazing bookstore in Miami when I was in high school, but being part of this group of other talented writers and budding writers, budding journalists, you know, from all over the country, you know, you mentioned that we were brought together. And so keeping up those relationships and maintaining those relationships. And then I left Miami and I went to Harvard and I realized that, wow, having a network is one of the most powerful things about going to a school like this. And the way that 
you know, your network was kind of currency was this whole new world that opened up to me that I never, ever even knew existed. And then when I went to Harvard, I got to be a part of it. And so I don't take that for granted. And it's still very important to me. But I have uh, one of my, um, one of the things I've been most excited about during the release of the book and the book tour is that I've been partnering with the Posse Foundation, who are this phenomenal nonprofit that work around the country, bringing together really talented students. They bring, uh, they give scholarships and they offer work opportunities, but part of the ethos behind them is that they bring these students and they put them together. So when they all start at the same college, they have a posse. And so they're not going alone and they are going with a built-in network already. And when I first heard about the work that posse was doing, I was completely blown away, but also like, yes, 100%. I wouldn't have gotten a single internship if I hadn't reached out to my network. I would not, I, I, you know, even meeting Zibby and getting my book published was in part, you know, knowing that it was important to find other people and make connections with them and keep them. And it helps that I really like her a lot as well. But, you know, all of those things are so, so vital and they are not, they, they don't come naturally or they're not obvious if you don't grow up in a family or a household where that has been an important thing or that's something that has been modeled for you. So um, I am very, a very big fan of networks. I am happy to use mine to support my friends and others. You know, I've asked my network for a lot over this book publication process and they have so delivered for me like a million more times than I possibly could have dreamed. Hosting events, my friend Alicia Menendez, who's a reporter on MSNBC, had me on her show. You know, people have just been incredible and I love that. It feels like I have put out a lot of love and gratitude into the world. And I have gotten some of that back. And that is like such a nice feeling. And I think that that's true. I think that you kind of get back what you put out there. And so if that's the case, I feel like I've done all right, because I'm getting just so much love from so many people from different parts of my life throughout this book process. Mm, that's really powerful. Yeah. Um, I know this has come up on other podcasts you've been on. You are not related to Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> But I know no you relation. know him. Yes, yes. <laughs> I know you know him. So how do you know him? Um, I am very good friends with his wife, who you might have heard interviewed on my podcast. Vanessa is a chemist and a lawyer by training. Uh, and then she was a professor and now she's still teaching law, but she's also gone back to work uh, as legal counsel for a cosmetics brand. She is one of the smartest just most wonderful women I know. And so I have known her for a long time. She um, was best friends from high school with my best friend from college. And so we have stayed in touch and she is married to Lynn. So that is how I know him. Wow. And they are uh, both as wonderful people as you could imagine, but no relation, only a coincidence that we have the same last name. <laughs> so did she go to the cool school too? She went to MIT. Oh, she, okay. and then she went, well, she and Laura went to Hunter College High School, as did Lynn, which must have been in there somewhere because that is a very cool school. Hunter yeah. is like the coolest of cool schools and they've produced all kinds of brilliant alumni, including those three people. So huh. it's fascinating to me that I have talked with several teen people news team members uh, who come from Florida. And um, so I've talked with Amar and Lindsay Soul Kirkman and Carisha Harris, and now you, and you all come from Florida. So I'm curious, what is it about youth journalism in Florida? God, I don't know. <laughs> Florida's always getting a bad rap these days. I think that uh, it's hard to remember that it wasn't always like a 
in the news for for horrible things. You know, I will. I I don't know if this is like in any way accurate, but um, the Knight Foundation uh, is a big Miami-based foundation, and one of the things that they I think they still do. They certainly did in my time every year was they hosted this thing called the Silver Knight Awards, which were um, awards for students in different categories. And journalism was one of those categories. They have a connection to the Miami Herald, I believe. There's certainly a journalistic element to that foundation. So maybe there's something to do with the fact that there was like a role model in that organization. But honestly, I'm just grasping at straws here. I mean, maybe it's because such it's such a beautiful, warm place to live. We have plenty to write about. Um, I don't know why there ended up being so many of us from Florida. I never really thought about that, but you're right. We were not representative of all 50 states, I don't think so. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, one thing that I ask all of my guests, um, thinking back on their teenage selves, is what advice would you give your teenage self today? Such a good question. You know, I was both a very confident teenager and a very insecure teenager. And I think a lot of my external confidence masked a lot of interior insecurity. And I wish that I could just go back and like hug teenage Alicia and be like, you are perfect. There is nothing wrong with you. And you just need to own all of the things that you are. And I suspect a lot of women my age would go back and tell their teenage selves that because I think um, it was... Well, it's still not an easy time to be uh, a young woman, but that was a particularly hard time. And of course, the other side of all these wonderful magazines that I loved reading was, you know, a lot of very uh, stereotypical messages about body image that we were getting and what was the right way to be. And, you know, if you were not blonde and thin and very pale, you know, that meant that you were somehow less than and internalizing a lot of those messages growing up and just thinking that that was the way things were. And so I don't think it's, I think it's probably, I'm, I'm sure I won't be the only person on your podcast to give that advice to her teenage self. But I think I would say like, just own it because there's just, you know, like how cool was that that I got to do that? So few people were part of that news team. It was such a special thing. And I was very proud, but also I'm sure I was thinking the whole time, like I shouldn't be here. Maybe they made a mistake bringing me on or something like that. So that's what I would tell her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that theme of taking up space is a recurring theme on this podcast. But it's also something that um, a few of my guests have, have mentioned that they feel like teen people really made an effort to uh, be different than you know the cosmos and the 17s of the world. Totally. It was. It was very teenage centric from the news team, but that was a that was part of what was the whole bigger ethos of the magazine. It was about putting the teenage experience first and at the center. And it wasn't necessarily about adults telling us what that should be. It wasn't a fashion magazine. You know, it did have a lot of celebrity stuff, but it was, you know, we had they had teen people book club. There were all sorts of different elements to that. And it was all about the experience of us as teenagers and the, you know, multitudes that were within that being the center. And it was really different. It was really, really different than, you know, it was also not just aimed at teenage girls. It was aimed at, you know, all teenagers. And it was really fantastically unique. And I think that the news team was one example of them really putting their money where their mouth was in terms of wanting to be a magazine for teenagers. And, Certainly everybody from the magazine that I interacted with, they were really authentic about that, at least in what I can remember. Hmm. 
Is there anything else that you wanted to speak to here that I've missed? I don't think so. We've covered a lot. (laughs) This has been awesome. It's been so nice to have the opportunity to think back on those days and that time. And I think it really was a very unique time in history. I know every time is a unique time in history, but um, to be part of that at that moment was just extraordinary. And I feel very grateful that I got a chance to be part of that. Well, it's been wonderful to connect with you in this moment and to catch you just before you go back out on your book tour. I know. I'll so be back out you. building my network. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Oh, very Anna, thank much. you so much. I'm so grateful. Alicia sent me some pictures from Teen People magazine's glitzy first anniversary party in New York in 1999. And you can find those pictures on my Twitter and Instagram at teenpeoplepod. Please go to her website and buy her book, My What If Year. You can find those links in the notes for this episode. Amar Shah's episode is the gift that keeps on giving because he not only connected me with Alicia, but with my next guest, Nadia Ahmed. Nadia is an associate professor of law at Barry University in Miami and was on Teen People's news team in 1998 and 99. She spoke with me about that experience and how she's working to future-proof vulnerable communities from the effects of climate change. I mentioned a few other guests in this episode. Lisa, Lindsay, Karisha, and of course, Amar. And you can find their episodes by scrolling back through my archives. Before you go, I've got a favor to ask. Please leave a rating or review. Doing a podcast as an indie creator can sometimes feel like working in an echo chamber. So your feedback helps me figure out how I'm doing. I'm Anna Soper. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.